Hello, and welcome to Ghoul Gals, the podcast that brings you the possibly true stories of weird little creatures and unearthly happenings. You can help to keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. I'm Cassandra. And I'm Julie. And And here here we go. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Cool Gals. Today we are celebrating Halloween in a very Ghoul Gals way. Yes. And we are going to each share a short story written by some beautiful authors. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be hopefully a little spooky. Yeah. Yeah. They're not just regular short stories. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to just get right into it? Let's do it. All right. Yeah. All right. What's your story? My story is Lacrimosa. By Sylvia Moreno Garcia. I know her. Mm -hmm. She is the author of a a best-selling author (laughs) of Mexican Gothic, Velvet Was the Night, and her latest one is called Silver Nitrate, which I have not read. Ah. (laughs) Neither have I. (laughs) Um, But I've heard very good things about it. So this short story is from Nightmare Magazine, Mm. and it was published in 2015. Oh. So, okay. I'm just going to get into it. Okay. Okay. The woman is a mound of dirt and rags pushing a squeaky shopping cart, a lump that moves steadily, slowly forward, as if dragged by an invisible tide. Her long, greasy hair hides her face, but Ramon feels her staring at him. Yeah. He looks ahead. The best thing to do with the homeless mob littering Vancouver is to ignore it. Mm. Give them a buck, and the beggars cling to you like barnacles. Have you seen my children? The woman asks. <gasps> no. <laughs> Wait, is she going to turn him into a pig? <laughs> His firstborn child into a pig? Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Her voice, sandpaper against his ears, makes him shiver. His heart jolts as though someone has pricked it with a needle. He keeps on walking, but much faster now. It isn't until he is shoving the milk inside the fridge that he realizes why the woman's words have upset him. She reminds him of the Yorona. <gasps> no, uh, I know whoa. her. Uh. <laughs> what, whoa? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> what, whoa? <laughs> he hasn't thought about her in years, not since he was a child living in Potrero. Everyone in town had a story about the Yorona. The most common tale was that she drowned her children in the river and afterwards roamed the town searching for them at night. Her pitiful cries are a warning and an omen. Camillo, Ramon's great-uncle, swore on his mother's graves that he met this ghost while riding home one night. Mm. It was the rainy season, when the rivers overflow, and Camillo was forced to take a secondary, unfamiliar road. He spotted a woman in white bending over some Napoles at the side of a lonely path, Her face was covered with the spines of the prickly pears she had savagely bitten. Mm. She turned around and smiled. Blood dripped from her open mouth and stained her white shift. This was the kind of story the locals whispered around Potrero. It was utter nonsense, especially coming from the lips of a chronic alcoholic like Camillo. 
but it was explosive stuff for an eight-year-old boy who stayed up late to watch black-and-white horror flicks on the battered TV set. However, to think about the Yorona, there in the middle of the city, between the Skytrain tracks and a pawn shop, is ridiculous. <laughs> Ramon never packed ghost stories in his suitcase, and Petrero and the Yorona are very far away. He sees the homeless woman sitting beneath a narrow ledge, shielding herself from the rain. She weeps and hugs a plastic bag as though it were a newborn. Have you seen my children? She asks when he rushes by. Oh my god, I hate it. (laughs) Nearby, a man sleeps in front of an abandoned store, an ugly old dog curled next to him. The downtown homeless peek at Ramon from the shadows as he steps over old cigarette butts. They say this is an up-and-coming neighborhood, but each day he spots a new beggar wielding an empty paper cup at his face. It is disgraceful. This is the very reason why he left Mexico. He escaped the stinking misery of his childhood and the tiny bedroom with the black and white TV set he had to share with his cousins. Behind his house, there were prickly pears and emptiness. No roads and no buildings, just a barren nothing swallowed by the purple horizon. It was easy to believe that the Yorona roamed there, but not in Vancouver, which is new and shiny, foaming with lattes and tiny condos. The dogs are howling. They scare him. Wild, stray animals that roam the back of the house at nights. His uncle told him the dogs howled when they saw the Yorona. Ramon runs to the girl's room and sneaks into his mother's bed, terrified of the noise. And his mother has to hold him, in her arms until he falls asleep. But when he wakes up, Ramon is in his apartment, and it is only one dog, the neighbor's Doberman, barking. He rolls to the center of the bed and stares at the ceiling. Ramon spots the woman a week later, Mm. her arms wrapped around her knees. My children, she asks, with her cloud of dirty hair obscuring her face. Where are my children? Nauseating in her madness, a disgusting sight growing like a canker sore and invading his streets. Just like the other homeless littering the area. The man in front of the drugstore that always asks him for spare change even though Ramon never gives him any. Or the gnarled man beneath a familiar blanket, eternally sleeping in the shade of the burger joint. The city is heading to the gutter. Sure, it looks pretty from afar with its tall glass buildings and its mountains. But below there is a depressing stew of junkies and panhandlers that mars the view. It reminds him of Potrero and the bedroom with the leaky ceiling. He stared at that small yellow leak, which grew to become an obscene dark patch above his bed until one day he grabbed his things and headed north. He felt like repeating his youthful impulsiveness, gathering his belongings in a duffel bag and leaving the gray skies of Vancouver. But he had the condo which would fetch a killing one day if he was patient, his job, and all the other anchors that a man pushing 40 can accumulate. A few years before, maybe. Now it seemed like a colossal waste of time. Ramon tries to comfort himself with the thought that one day, when he retires, he will move to a tropical island of pristine white beaches and blue-green seas where the wrecks of humanity can never wash ashore. He's gone to buy groceries, and there she is, picking cans out of the garbage in the alley behind the supermarket. 
Yarona. He used to send a postcard to his mother every year when he was younger, newly arrived in the States. He couldn't send any money because dishwashing didn't leave you many spare dollars, and he couldn't phone often because he rented a room in a house, and there was no phone jack in there. If he wanted to make a call, he had to use the payphone across the street. Instead, he sent postcards. Carmen didn't like it. His sister complained about his lack of financial support for their mother. Why do I have to take care of mom, who? Why is it me stuck in the house with her? She asked him. Don't be melodramatic. You like living with mom. You're off in California and never send a goddamn cent. It ain't easy. It ain't easy here either, Ramon. You're just like all the other shitty men, just taking off and leaving the land and the women behind. Yeah. Who's going to take care of mom when she gets old and sick? Who's going to clean the house and dust it then? With what fucking money? I ain't doing it, Ramon. Bye, Carmen. There's some things you can't get rid of, Ramon, his sister yelled. He didn't call after that. Soon he was heading to another city, and by the time he reached Canada, he didn't bother sending postcards. He figured he would, one day, but things got in the way, and years later he thought it would be even worse if he tried to phone. And what would they talk about now? It had been ages since he'd left home, and the sister and cousins that he had lived in Potrero. He had gotten rid of layers and layers of the old Ramon, molting into a new man. But maybe Carmen had been right. Maybe there's some things you can't get rid of. Certain memories, certain stories, certain fears that cling to the skin like old scars. Those things follow you. Maybe ghosts can follow you too. It's a bad afternoon. Assholes at work and in the streets. And then a heavy, disgusting rain pours down. Almost a sludge that swallows the sidewalks. Mm. He's lost his umbrella and walks with his hands jammed inside his jacket head down. Four more blocks, and he'll be home. That's when Ramon hears the squeal, a high-pitched noise. It's a shriek, a moan, a sound he's never heard before. What the hell is that? He turns and looks, and it is the old woman, the one he's nicknamed Yorona, pushing her shopping cart. Squeak, squeak, goes the cart, matching each of his steps. Squeak, squeak. <laughs> A metallic chirping echoed by a low mumble. Children, children, children. Squeak, squeak, squeak. A metallic chant with an old rhythm. He walks faster. The cart matches his pace. Wheels roll. He doubles his efforts, hurrying to cross the street before the light changes. The cart groans closer than before, nipping at his heels. He thinks she is about to hit him with the damn thing, and then all of a sudden the sound stops. He looks over his shoulder. The woman is gone. She has veered into an alley, vanishing behind a dumpster. Ramon runs home. The dogs are howling again, a howl that is a wail. The wind roars like a demon. The rain scratches the windows, begging to be let in, and he lies under the covers, terrified. He feels his mother's arms around his body, his hands smoothing his hair like she did when he was scared. Just a little boy terrified of the phantoms that wander through the plains. His mother's hand pats his own. Mother's hand is bony. Ugh. Gnarled, long fingers with filthy nails. 
nails caked in dirt. The smells of mud, putrid garbage, and mold hit him hard. Ooh, no. (laughs) He looks at his mother, and her hair is a tangle of gray. Her yellow smile paints the dark. He leaps from the bed. When he hits the floor, he realizes the room is filled with at least three inches of water. Have you seen my children? The thing in the bed asks. Oh, no. (laughs) The dogs howl and he wakes up, his face buried in the pillow. He takes a cab to work. He feels safer that way. The streets are her domain. She owns the alleys. When he goes to lunch, he looks at the puddles and thinks about babies drowned in water. Oh, my God. Yeah. Corpses floating down a silver corpses floating down a silver river don't ever let the yorona look at you his uncle said once she's seen you she'll follow you home and haunt you to death little boy no why would you tell that to a little boy right no oh my children she'll scream and drag you into the river but he'd left her behind in potrero he thought he'd left her behind Ramon tries to recall if there is a charm or remedy against the evil spirit. His uncle never mentioned one. The only cure he knew was his mother's embrace. There, there, little one, she said, and he nestled safe against her while the river overflowed and lightning traced snakes in the sky. In the morning, there is a patch of sunlight. Ramon dares to walk a a few blocks. But even without the rain, the city feels washed out. Its color has been drained. It resembles the monochromatic images they broadcasted on the cheap television set of his youth. Even though he does not bump into her, the Yorona's presence lays thick over the streets. Pieces of darkness cling to the walls and the dumpsters in the alleys. It even seems to spread over the people. The glassy eyes of a binner reflect a river instead of the bricks of a building. He hurries back home and locks the door. But when it rains again, water leaks into the living room, just a few little drops drifting into his apartment. He wipes the floor clean. More water seeps in like a festering boil, cut open and oozing disease. The Yorona stands guard in the alley. She has a lump in the night looking up at his apartment window. He feels her through the concrete walls and the glass, looking for him. He fishes for the old notebook with the smudged and forgotten number. The rain splashes against his building, and the wind cries like a woman. The dial tone is loud against his ear. More than ten years have passed. He has no idea what he'll say. He doesn't even understand what he wants to ask. He can't politely request to ship the ghost back to Mexico. (laughs) He dials. The number has been disconnected. He thinks about Carmen and his mother and the dusty nothingness behind their house. There might not even be a house. Perhaps the night and the river swallowed them. The Yorona comes with the rain. Or maybe it is the other way around. The rain comes with her. Something else also comes. Darkness. His apartment grows dimmer. He remains in the pools of light away from the blackness. Outside, in the alley, the Yorona scratches the dumpster with her nails. The dogs howl. Ramon shivers in his bed and thinks about his mother and how she used to drive the ghosts away. 
She is sitting next to a heap of garbage in the middle of the alley, water pouring down her shoulders. She clutches rags and dirt and pieces of plastic against her chest, her head bowed and her face hidden behind the screen of her hair. My children, my children. She looks up at him slowly. The rain coats her face, tracing dirty rivulets along her cheeks. He expects an image out of a nightmare, blood dripping, yellow cat eyes, or a worn skull. But this is an old woman. Her skin has been torn by time and her eyes are cloudy. This is an old woman. She could be his mother. She might be, for all he knows. He lost her photograph a long time ago and can't recall what she looks like anymore. His mother who ran her fingers through his hair and hugged him until the ghosts vanished. Now he's too old for ghosts, but the ghosts still come at night. The woman looks at him, parched, forgotten, and afraid. I've lost my children, she whispers with her voice of dead leaves. The alley is a river. He goes to her, sinks into the muck, sinks into the silvery water. He embraces her and she strokes his hair. The sky above is black and white, like the pictures in the old TV set, and the wind that howls in his ears is the demon wind of his childhood. The end. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's good. I mean, that's right. Uh, Horfang on a few different levels. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, very good. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> God. Shoot. Okay. All right. <laughs> so um, today I'm going to do uh, A Rose for Emily, Ooh. which is written by William Faulkner. Ooh. Yeah. Hello. Heard of him. When Miss Emily Grierson died, our whole town went to her funeral. The men threw a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument, the women mostly out of curiosity to see the inside of her house, which no one save an old manservant, a combined gardener and cook, had seen in at least ten years. Ooh. It was a big, squarish frame house that had once been white, decorated with cupolas and spires and scrolled balconies in the heavily lightsome style of the 70s. I think 1870s? <laughs> Anyway, because when I read that, I was like, hmm. And then I was like, oh, okay. Um, set on what once had been our most select street, but garages and cotton gins had encroached and obliterated even the august names of that neighborhood. Mm. Only Miss Emily's house was left, lifting its stubborn and coquettish decay above the cotton wagons and the gasoline pumps, an eyesore among eyesores. Mm. And now Miss Emily had gone to join the representatives of those august names where they lay in their cedar-bemused cemetery among the ranked and anonymous graves of Union and Confederate soldiers who fell at the Battle of Jefferson. Alive, Miss Emily had been a tradition, a duty, and a care, a sort of hereditary obligation upon the town, dating from that day in 1894 when Colonel Satoris, the mayor, he who fathered the edict that no Negro woman oh. yep, should appear on the streets without an apron. What? Uh, remitted her taxes, the dispensation dating from the death of her father on into per- perpetuity. 
Sure. Horrible line. Okay. (laughs) uh, Not that Miss Emily would have accepted charity. Colonel Satoris invented an involved tale to the effect that Miss Emily's father had loaned money to the town, which the town, as a matter of business, preferred this way of repaying. So letting her live there. Sure. Okay. Um, Only a man of Colonel Satoris' generation and thought could have invented it, and only a woman could have believed it. (laughs) 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 You can tell this was old. Uh Um, Uh All right. When the next generation, with its more modern ideas, became mayors and aldermen, this arrangement created some little dissatisfaction. On the first of the year, they mailed her a tax notice. February came, and there was no reply. They wrote her a formal letter, asking her to call up the sheriff's office at her convenience. A week later, the mayor wrote her himself, offering to call or to send his car for her, and received in reply a note on paper of an archaic shape in a thin, flowing calligraphy in faded ink to the effect that she no longer went out at all. The tax notice was also enclosed without comment. Hmm. They called a special meeting of the Board of Aldermen. A deputation waited upon her, knocked at the door through which no visitor had passed since she ceased giving China painting lessons eight or ten years earlier. Hmm. They were admitted by the old servant into a dim hall from which a stairway mounted into still more shadow. It Hmm. smelled of dust and disuse, a Hmm. close, dank smell. Hmm. The servant led them into the parlor. It was furnished in heavy, leather-covered furniture. When the servant opened the blinds of one window, they could see that the leather was cracked, and when they sat down, a faint dust rose sluggishly about their thighs, spinning with slow motes and the single sun ray. Oh, Mm -hmm. pretty. It is. (laughs) On a tarnished gilt easel before the fireplace stood a crayon portrait of Miss Emily's father. They rose when she entered, a small, fat woman in black, with a thin gold chain descending to her waist and vanishing into her belt, leaning on an ebony cane with a tarnished gold head. Her skeleton was small and spare. Perhaps that was why what would have been merely plumpness in another was obesity in her. Yikes. Okay. (laughs) Uh, She looked (laughs) bloated, like a body long submerged in motionless water, and of that pallid hue. Oh, yuck. Her eyes, lost in the fatty ridges of her face, looked like two small pieces of coal pressed into a lump of dough as they moved from one face to another while the visitors stated their errand. She did not ask them to sit. She just stood in the door and listened quietly until the spokesman came to a stumbling halt. Then they could hear the invisible watch ticking at the end of the gold chain. Her voice was dry and cold. I have no taxes in Jefferson. Colonel Satoris explained it to me. Perhaps one of you can gain access to the city records and satisfy yourselves. But we have... We are the city authorities, Miss Emily. Didn't you get a notice from the sheriff signed by him? I received a paper, yes, Miss Emily said. Perhaps he considers himself the sheriff. I have no taxes in Jefferson. Nice. <laughs> but there's nothing in the books to show that. You see, we must go by the... See, Colonel Satoris, I have no taxes in Jefferson. But Miss Emily, see... Colonel Satoris? Colonel Satoris had been dead almost ten years. I have no taxes in Jefferson. Tobe! 
The servant appeared. Show these gentlemen out. <gasps> Tobe. <laughs> Tobe. Uh-huh. So she vanquished them, horse and foot, just as she had vanquished their fathers 30 years before about the smell. Oh. That was two years after her father's death and a short time after her sweetheart, the one we believed would marry her, had deserted her. Oh, God. After her father's death, she went out very little. After her sweetheart went away, people hardly saw her at all. A few of the ladies had the temerity to call, but were not received, and the only sign of life about the place was a servant man, a young man, then, going in and out with a market basket. Just as if a man, any man, could keep a kitchen properly, the ladies said. <laughs> so they were not surprised when the smell developed. It was another link between the gross, teeming world and the high and mighty Grierson's. A neighbor, a woman, complained to the mayor, Judge Stevens, 80 years old. Oh, God. <laughs> but what will you have me to do about it, madam? He said. Why, send her word to stop it, the woman said. Isn't there a law? I'm sure that won't be necessary, Judge Stevens said. It's probably just a snake or a rat that servant of hers killed in the yard. I'll speak to him about it. The next day he received two more complaints, one from a man who came in diffident depreciation. Well, we really must do something about it, Judge. I'd be the last one in the world to bother Miss Emily, but we've got to do something. <laughs> that, that night, the board of aldermen met, Three gray beards and one younger man, a member of the rising generation. It's simple enough, he said. Send her word to have her place cleaned up. Give her a certain time to do it in, and if she don't... Damn it, sir, Judge Stevens said. Will you accuse a lady to her face of smelling bad? <laughs> so the next night, after midnight, four men crossed Miss Emily's lawn and slunk about the house like burglars, sniffing along the base of the brickwork and the cellar openings while one of them performed a regular sewing motion with his hand out of a sack slung from his shoulder. They broke open the cellar door and sprinkled lime there and in the outbuildings. Oh. As they recrossed the lawn, a window that had been dark was lighted, and Miss Emily sat in it. The light behind her and her upright torso motionless as that of an idol. They crept quietly across the lawn and into the shadow of the locusts that lined the street. After a week or two, the smell went away. That was when people had begun to feel really sorry for her. People in our town remembering how old Lady Wyatt, her great aunt, had gone completely crazy at last, believed that the Griersons held themselves a little too high for what they really were. None of the young men were quite good enough for Miss Emily and such. We had long thought of them as a tableau, Miss Emily a slender figure in white in the background, her father a spraddled silhouette in the foreground, his back to her and clutching a horsewhip, the two of them framed by the back-flung front door. So when she got to be thirty and was still single, we were not pleased exactly, but vindicated. Even with insanity in the family, she wouldn't have turned down all of her chances if they had really materialized. When her father died, it got about that the house was all that was left to her, and in a way, people were glad. At last, they could pity Miss Emily. Being left alone and a pauper, she had been humanized. Now she, too, would know the old thrill and the old despair of a penny more or less. Mm. The day after his death, all the ladies prepared to call at the house and offer condolence and aid. 
As is our custom, Miss Emily met them at the door, dressed as usual and with no trace of grief on her face. She told them that her father was not dead. She did that for three days, with the ministers calling on her and the doctors trying to persuade her to let them dispose of the body. Oh, God. Just as they were about to resort to law and force, she broke down, and they buried her father quickly. We did not say she was crazy then. We believed that she had to do that. We remembered all the young men her father had driven away, and we knew that with nothing left, she would have to cling to that which had robbed her, as people will. She was sick for a long time. When we saw her again, her hair was cut short, making her look like a girl with a vague resemblance to those angels in colored church windows, sort of tragic and serene. The town had just let the contracts for paving the sidewalks, and in the summer after her father's death, they began to work. The construction company came with men and mules and machinery, and a foreman named Homer Barron, a Yankee. A big, dark, ready man with a big voice and eyes lighter than his face. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> frightening. <laughs> I'm picturing like seven foot tall. Yeah. Horrifying blue eyes. Hate it. Okay. Uh, the little boys would follow in groups to hear him cuss the men <laughs> and the men singing in time to the rise and fall of picks. Pretty soon he knew everybody in town. Whenever you heard a lot of laughing anywhere about the square, Homer Barron would be in the center of the group. Hmm. Presently, we began to see him and Miss Emily on Sunday afternoons driving in the yellow wheeled buggy and the matched team of bays from the livery stable. At first, we were glad that Miss Emily would have an interest because the ladies all said, of course, a Grierson would not think seriously of a northerner, a day laborer. But there were still others, older people, who said that even grief could not cause a real lady to forget noblesse oblige. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's anything. Uh, without calling it noblesse oblige. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they, just, they just said, poor Emily, her kinsfolk should come to her. <laughs> she had some kin in Alabama, but years ago her father had fallen out with them over the estate of old Lady Wyatt, the crazy woman, and there was no communication between the two families. They had not even been represented at the funeral. And as soon as the old people said, poor Emily, the whispering began. Do you suppose it's really so? They said to one another. Of course it is. What else could? This behind their hands rustling of craned silk and satin behind jalousies closed upon the sun of sunday afternoon as the thin swift clop 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 of the matched team passed poor emily she carried her head high enough even when we believed that she was fallen it was as if she had demanded more than ever the recognition of her dignity as the last grierson as if it had wanted that touch of earthiness to reaffirm her imperviousness like when she bought the rat poison the arsenic that was over a year after they had begun to say poor Emily, and while the two female cousins were visiting her. I want some poison, she said to the druggist. She was over thirty then, still a slight woman, though thinner than usual, with cold, haughty black eyes, in the face the flesh of which was drained across the temples and about the eye sockets, as you imagine a lighthouse keeper's face ought to look. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, I want some poison, she said. Yes, Miss Emily. What kind? For rats and such? I'd recommend. I want the best you have. I don't care what kind. Oh, my God. The druggist named several. 
They'll kill anything up to an elephant. What you want is arsenic, Miss Emily said. Is that a good one? <laughs> she knows it's a good one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> is arsenic? Yes, ma'am. But what you want, I want arsenic. the druggist looked down at her she looked back at him erect her face like a strained flag why of course the druggist said if that's what you want but the law requires you to tell me what you're going to use it for miss emily just stared at him her head tilted back in order to look him eye for eye till he looked away and went and got the arsenic and wrapped it up The delivery boy brought her the package. The druggist didn't come back. When she opened the package at home, there was written on the box under the skull and bones, for rats. (laughs) So the next day, we all said, she will kill herself. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Right. Uh, And we said, it would be the best thing. God. <laughs> when, <laughs> when she had first begun to be seen with Homer Baron, we had said, she will marry him. Mm. Then we said, she will persuade him yet. Because Homer himself had remarked he liked men. And it was known that he drank with the younger men in the Elks Club, that he was not a marrying man. Oh my God. Right? Gay. Gay. <laughs> uh, later we said, poor Emily behind the jalousies as they passed on Sunday afternoon in the glittering buggy. Miss Emily with her head high and Homer Barron with with his hat cocked and a cigar in his teeth. Reins and whip in a yellow glove. Then some of the ladies began to say that it was a disgrace to the town and a bad example to the young people. The men did not want to interfere, but at last the ladies forced the Baptist minister, Miss Emily's people were Episcopal, to call upon her. He would never divulge what happened during that interview, but he refused to go back again. Mm -hmm. The next Sunday, they again drove about the streets, and the following day, the minister's wife wrote to Miss Emily's relations in Alabama. So she had blood kin under her roof again, and we sat back to watch the developments. At first, nothing happened. Then we were sure that they were going to be married. We learned that Miss Emily had been to the jewelers and ordered a man's toilet set in silver. (laughs) With the letters HB on each piece. Mm. Two days later, we learned that she had bought a complete outfit of men's clothing, including a nightshirt. And we said, they are married. We were really glad. We were glad because the two female cousins were even more Grierson than Miss Emily had ever been. So we were not surprised when Homer Barron, the streets had been finished some time since, was gone. We were a little disappointed that there was not a public blowing off, but we believed that he had gone on to prepare for Miss Emily's coming, or to give her a chance to get rid of the cousins. By that time, it was a cabal, and we were all Miss Emily's allies to help circumvent the cousins. Sure enough, after another week, they departed, and as we had expected all along, within three days, Homer Barron was back in town. A neighbor saw the manservant admit him at the kitchen door at dusk one evening. And that was the last we saw of Homer Baron, and of Miss Emily for some time. The servant man went in and out with the market basket, but the front door remained closed. Now and then we would see her at a window for a moment, as the men did that night when they sprinkled the lime, but for almost six months she did not appear on the streets. 
Then we knew that this was to be expected, too, as if that quality of her father which had thwarted her woman's life so many times had been too virulent and too furious to die. When we next saw Miss Emily, she had grown fat and her hair was turning gray. During the next few years, it grew grayer and grayer until it attained an, e an even pepper-and-salt iron gray when it ceased turning. Up to the day of her death at 74, it was still that vigorous iron gray, like the hair of an active man. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> From that time on, her front door remained closed, save for a period of six or seven years when she was about 40, during which she gave lessons in China painting. <laughs> Uh, she fitted up a studio in one of the downstairs rooms where the daughters and granddaughters of Colonel Satoris's contemporaries were sent to her with the same regularity and in the same spirit that they were sent to church on Sundays with a 25-cent piece for the collection plate. Meanwhile, her taxes had been remitted. Then the newer generations became the backbone and the spirit of town, and the painting pupils grew up and fell away and did not send their children to her with boxes of color and tedious brushes and pictures cut from the ladies' magazines. The front door closed upon the last one and remained closed for good. When the town got free postal delivery, Miss Emily alone refused to let them fasten the metal numbers above her door and attach a mailbox to it. She would not listen to them. Oh, interesting. Daily, monthly, yearly, we watched the servant grow grayer and more stooped, going in and out with a market basket. Each December, we sent her a tax notice, which would be returned to the post office a week later, unclaimed. Now and then, we would see her in one of the downstairs windows. She had evidently shut up the top floor of the house, like the carven torso of an idol in a niche, looking or not looking at us. We could never tell which. Thus she passed from generation to generation, dear, inescapable, impervious, tranquil, and perverse. And so she died, fell ill in a house filled with dust and shadows, with only a doddering servant man to wait on her. We did not even know she was sick. We had long since given up trying to get any information from the man. He talked to no one, probably not even to her, for his voice had grown harsh and rusty as if from disuse. She died in one of the downstairs rooms, in a heavy walnut bed with a curtain, her gray head propped in a pillow, yellow and moldy with age and a lack of sunlight. Ew. <laughs> the servant met the first of the ladies at the front door and let them in, with their hushed, sibilant voices and their quick, curious glances, and then he disappeared. He walked right through the house and out the back and was not seen again. The two female cousins came at once. They held the funeral on the second day, with the town coming to look at Miss Emily beneath a mass of bought flowers, with the crayon face of her father musing profoundly above the byre, and the ladies sibilant and macabre, and the very old men, some of their brushed Confederate uniforms, on the porch and in the lawn, talking of Miss Emily as if she had been a contemporary of theirs, believing that they had danced with her and courted her, perhaps, confusing time with its mathematical progression, as the old do, to whom all the past is not a diminishing road, but instead a huge meadow which no winter ever touches, divided from them now and then by narrow bottleneck of the most recent decade of years. Already we knew that there was one room in that region above stairs which no one had seen in 40 years, and which would have to be forced. They waited until Miss Emily was decently in the ground before they opened it. 
The violence of breaking down the door seemed to fill this room with pervading dust. A thin, acrid pall as of the tomb seemed to lie everywhere upon this room, decked and furnished as for a bridal. Upon the valance curtains of faded rose color, upon the rose-shaded lights, upon the dressing table, upon the delicate array of crystal and the man's toilet things backed with tarnished silver, silver so tarnished that the monogram was obscured, among them lay a collar and tie, as if they had just been removed, which lifted, left upon the surface a pale crescent in the dust. Upon a chair hung the suit, carefully folded. Beneath it, the two mute shoes and the discarded socks. The man himself lay in the bed. For a long while we just stood there, looking down at the profound and fleshless grin. The body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace, but now the long sleep that outlasts love, that conquers even the grimace of love, had cuckolded him. What was left of him, rotted beneath what was left of the nightshirt, had become inextricable from the bed in which he lay. And upon him, and upon the pillow beside him, lay that even coating of the patient and biting dust. Then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from it, and leaning forward, that faint and invisible dust, dry and acrid in the nostrils, we saw a long strand of iron-gray hair. Oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I love it. Isn't that fun? Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, had, I hadn't read it for a while, and rereading it, I was like... Nice, especially like that arsenic bit, like yeah, ooh. yeah, yeah, like because she's spooky on her own, mm-hmm. and then yikes, yeah, oh yeah, I love it, ooh, I love it. Well, happy Halloween, happy everyone! Happy Halloween! The best time of the year. I can't believe it's just like it's it's gone now. Bye. About to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking I need to go to um, Elmwood Cemetery before all the leaves are gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed our scary little stories. Yeah. Yeah. And we will talk to you later. Peep you later. <laughs> oh my God. Peep. Oh, great. And don't forget, you can help keep the night lights on by supporting us through Patreon. The link is in the description. So this is where we say, see you later, ghouls and boys. All right. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. <laughs>